0: As long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters, who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Disaster Queen Podcast. Thanks for coming back to explore another disaster with me. I'm your host, Jenny, the Disaster Queen. I want to wish you all very happy holidays, no matter what you celebrate. We call this season Merry Birthmas in my house. My daughter has a birthday, November 16th, my husband, November 26th, my son, December 17th, and then we can get to Christmas. So we are forging through, but we're having a very jelly, hectic, exhausting time as you do. And I hope you guys are having a good holiday season today. We are going to do something that has nothing to do with the holidays, nothing whatsoever, but it is a very big event in the history of the United States. As far as natural disasters go it's actually the worst natural disaster the United States has ever suffered. And I think one of the least known, to be honest, because it happened 123 years ago. We're talking about the great Galveston hurricane of 1900, which hit the island city of Galveston, Texas. So imagine with me, if you will, that you're living on the Gulf Coast of Texas, And you want to take a little Saturday foray out to the island of Galveston. Maybe you have a weekend home there because you're well-to-do and very posh. Maybe you have friends there that you're going to be visiting. Maybe you have business there and you just want to, or maybe you just want to catch a day at the beach. I don't know. But if you were going to get there back in 1900, you had to take a train and then a ferry so there was a group of passengers, 95 of them coming from Beaumont, Texas. They took a train to the Boulevard Peninsula. And from there, they were going to take a ferry to Galveston Island. But on Saturday, September 8th, the weather was not too great. And the passengers on this train endured some pretty high winds and very heavy rain while they were chugging their way toward the toward the Boulevard Peninsula to catch their ferry to Galveston Island. When they got to the Boulevard Peninsula they witnessed their ferry coming at them trying again and again and again to get close to the dock but the wind and the rain just kept pushing the ferry around like it was a toy and finally the ferry driver gave up and went back to Galveston. So all these passengers are watching their ferry just abandon them and they're thinking, what's next? So the conductor was ordered back to Beaumont, Texas, so he started to back up his train and try to get on different tracks to go back, but soon, very soon, was stopped by very high water coming up onto the tracks and into the train. So, at this point, about 10 of the 95 passengers disembarked and decided to go weather the storm, which had come out of nowhere in a lighthouse at the Boulevard Peninsula. So 10 of them were like, I'm out of here. The rest of the 85 thought that being in a very, very heavy steel steam train was the place to be during a storm storm with high winds. They figured nothing could knock this train over. Unfortunately for them, they were wrong. And the 10 passengers who joined about 150 others in the lighthouse at Boulevard Peninsula survived. But the 85 train passengers were just about a little less than a tenth of the victims of the Great Galveston Hurricane of 1900 washed into the sea when the storm surge ripped their train right off the tracks. And that is the opening story to give you just an idea of how big this tragedy is going to be. But first, before we dive deep, 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 deep into the Galveston Hurricane, let's talk about Galveston itself. Galveston is an island on the Gulf of Mexico It is, uh, got Galveston Bay on another side. It's a beautiful bustling city in this day and age. Back in 1900, it was a real boom town. It was the fourth largest municipality in Texas in terms of population. And it had among the highest per capita income rates in the United States. So it was a pretty rich city. It was gorgeous. It was on the beach. They had an opera house. They had a business district in downtown. Um, and some very, very ornate buildings and homes in a section called The Strand, which was considered the Wall Street of the Southwest. Now, because of its position um, with the harbor of Galveston Bay along the Gulf of Mexico, it was a center of trade in Texas and it was actually competing with Houston to be Texas's big port city and it was winning. It was winning. I think this was like I don't know if it happens as much today, but there's a competition among big cities. I think there is. But back then, I mean, it was a really big deal, like bragging rights about where you were from. And so Galvestonians were very proud of themselves. They were the first city in Texas to have electricity. They were fashionable. They had gorgeous beach homes. It was very idyllic there much of the year. And they were competing with Houston to be the big port city, and they were winning. So... Galvestonians were feeling pretty good about themselves. Optimism was coming out of their pores. It was a very big deal to be from Galveston. In addition to all this optimism, Galveston also had a population of about 37,000 people. So it was pretty good-sized city. And they also felt a bit, I'm going to say invincible, in the spirit of the time It was 1900, technology was coming into the fore, they had telegraph lines, they had telephones, they had electricity, and they were just feeling sort of invincible. They had certainly weathered some tropical storms before, but no serious loss of life and no serious damage, and they failed to take a lesson from a town a little further up the coast off the mainland um, called Indianola, which was a... Similarly, booming town. But in 1875, a powerful hurricane blew through Indianola and nearly destroyed the town. But in the spirit of the day, Indianola was rebuilt. However, 11 years later in 1886, another huge hurricane came through, totally devastating the town. And at this point, their citizens pretty much gave up and abandoned Indianola. Their optimism was gone. They were like, we need to find somewhere safer to live so we don't have to rebuild our lives every decade. I wish Galveston had taken some lessons from this, but they did not. Galveston Island at the time was only eight feet above sea level at its very highest point. And some residences, some residents did consider building a seawall after Indianola was devastated in 1886. But that optimism overpowered those feelings of caution, and the majority of the population and the city's government dismissed the concerns of those who wanted a seawall. And one of their leading citizens, who we shall discuss in just a moment, meteorologist Chief Weatherman Isaac Klein, wrote an article in 1891 that basically said that no hurricane could cause serious damage to the Gulf. His reasons were geographical in nature. I don't really understand them, but he didn't have a big enough understanding of hurricanes at the time. And he predicted that no major hurricane or cyclone could devastate Galveston and that anyone who thought so was, and I quote, deluded or having a delusion was his quote, something to that effect. So That pretty much swayed anyone who was having, um, doubts about the seawall and they just decided, nah, we don't need a seawall. We'll be fine. We'll be fine if a storm comes. So we're about to see how that worked out for them. But first let's talk about Sir Isaac Klein. He's not really a sir. I just called him that. Isaac Klein was, like I said, the chief meteorologist in Texas, um, but he was stationed in Galveston. So he was head of the U S weather bureau in Texas, but he lived and worked in Galveston and he was actually born and raised in Tennessee. He went to Hiawassee college. And then because he wanted to be a weatherman, he considered himself a man of science. He joined the U S army signal Corps because at that time, that's who trained you to be a weatherman. So eventually that became the U S weather bureau. But before that, it was the Signal Corps. And so after he finished his training there, they sent him to Arkansas, where in his spare time, he became a medical doctor as well. And his goal was to study how weather affected people's health, which I think is super interesting. Um, He met a young woman named Cora May Ballou, and they married and had three daughters. And in 1889, he was sent to Galveston. As the meteorologist there and eventually became the head of the Weather Bureau in Texas. A few years later, at some point, he hired his younger brother Joseph to assist him in the weather station. So his younger brother Joseph was also a meteorologist. And they worked together and they lived together. Now, to tell you something about Isaac Klein and his overall contribution to weather, not just um, in Galveston, but his whole many, many years serving the National Weather Bureau. There's an award named after him, the Isaac M. Klein Award. It's the National Weather Service's highest honor and is named due to, and I quote, his numerous contributions to the mission of the Weather Bureau. And he is one of the most recognized employees in weather service history, they say. So he didn't just, we're going to hear a lot about him and maybe what he did or did do wrong in this situation, did or didn't do wrong. But he had a big contribution to the United States' study of weather overall. So he was 39 in 1900, living there in Galveston, just four blocks from the beach, with his three daughters, his very pregnant and ill wife, Cora Cora May, who was having a difficult time with the pregnancy, and his younger brother, Joseph. I mentioned before the article that he wrote um, about how he didn't feel that a storm could harm Galveston. So I wanted to read you a quote from that. And most of my notes from for this podcast, most of my research is from a book by Eric Larson called Isaac's Storm, which is particularly about Isaac Klein and the storm. I also read Storm of the Century by everyone's favorite TV meteorologist, Al Roker. It's also a really good book. And I watched a documentary called Isaac's Storm, which is based on the book too. All of those resources I highly recommend. But here is a quote from... Isaac Klein, which is quoted in the book Isaac's Storm. It says the opinion held by some who are unacquainted with the actual conditions of things that Galveston will at some time be seriously damaged by some disturbance is simply an absurd delusion. Unfortunately, that's what Isaac Klein believed. He wrote that in 1891 and nine years later he would be proven super, super tragically wrong. So let's talk about September 1900 in the midst of this um, optimism with Isaac Klein just living his life, there comes, on the 1st of September in Cuba, a storm spotted by some pretty good meteorologists in Cuba. Funny enough, the weather station there was run by some priests. So a priest slash meteorologist named Father Reese Gangoyt, um, who was the director of the Bellin College Observatory in Havana noticed that there was a storm in its formative stages and thought it might become a tropical cyclone. So he kept his eye on it. Um, After several days, he sent a report to the United States Weather Bureau that he thought this system was moving towards Texas. But the United States Weather Bureau, as it was then called, disagreed with this forecast and they said they expected the system to re to curve up, and make landfall in florida and then um across the east coast of the united states they did not feel like it was going to move toward the gulf of mexico the cubans were like yes it is and the americans were like no it's not and actually this is super crazy but truth be told the americans were still mad about the spanish-american war that they'd had involving cuba And even though they were receiving these weather warnings from Cuba, the chief of the weather bureau, um, a man named Willis Moore, was very dismissive of the Cubans and didn't want to take their advice or instruction, even though they had some really advanced, especially in um, the area of hurricane, cyclones, tropical storms, especially since they had some really advanced um, knowledge there. He should have listened to them, but he didn't. Due to tensions in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, he actually changed protocol and made a rule that they were to ignore cables from Cuba. And he also, because he didn't want to panic people, made it a rule that the local weather bureau stations like Isaac and Galveston would have to seek authorization from the central office in Washington, D.C. before they could even issue storm warnings and raise storm flags to warn their local populace so i think this guy willis moore had a bit of a control issue and to me he's not he's not really a good guy in this story so september 4th the cubans are trying really hard to warn the united states and uh tell them hey something's coming your way to texas to the gulf of mexico it's not going to be good and the u.s folks not only disagreed with their forecast but would not hear them and banned Um, anyone from reading and disseminating the cables from Cuba. So not great. Didn't turn out well, as we will soon find out. Let's talk about, okay, we're talking about the lead up to the hurricane. So that's the lead up to kind of like, there's a tropical storm out there. Here's where where it's headed. There's disagreement about it. That's September 4th. So finally on September 8th, that's the day when everything hits the fan, if you will. Um, On that morning, um, Isaac, brother Joseph, like I said, they lived together, woke him up very early in the morning. He could hear the waves hitting the beach, and he said, I think something's wrong. I think something's wrong. And Isaac was like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine, but let's go down and check. So they visited the beach. Isaac timed the swells coming in. And he he thought, well, they're coming pretty regularly, but it seems like a beautiful day. I don't see anything weird with the sky. Uh, I think it's finally, it's probably fine. So he and Joseph went to their office. Um, They argued a bit about what they should do. And then Isaac went back to the beach. This is again, according to the book, Isaac's Storm by Eric Larson. And he started measuring the tides and swells again. And he started to get nervous. Um, This is an early afternoon. He sent a cable to Washington, to the weather bureau, to his boss, Willis Moore, that said, such high water with opposing winds never observed previously. And he also went into town to tell merchants in lower lying areas to move their valuables up by three feet off the ground. He said, because, you know, I think we're going to get some flooding. Um, He, so he thought, he thought, yeah, this, the island's going to have some flooding. There's going to be some damage, but he still wasn't super, super worried. And he also really trusted his four-year-old house. Um, which was built up on stilts, as many of them were, to be really sturdy and strong. And he was sure that it could survive any storm. So he really wasn't all that freaked out. However, early afternoon, when things kept getting worse and worse, he did eventually raise the hurricane flag, which you were not allowed to do without express permission from the weather bureau. But he did it anyway. Because he believed that it was going to be a hurricane-level storm and he wanted to start warning people. Now, in Isaac's own journal, he also says that he rode up and down the beach on his horse and yelled at people and warned people to evacuate, to move inland, that there was going to be a hurricane. And he says, by his own account, that over 6,000 lives were saved that day by him alone. (laughs) Eric Larson, in his research, pushed back really hard on that. He believed does not believe that's true. He believes he said there's no corroborating accounts of Isaac riding up and down the beach and yelling at people to evacuate. He also said that by the time Isaac says he did that, that there were no way for people to get out of the city and evacuate to Houston because the um, water was already up too high on the tracks. So, I guess you can judge for yourself if you want to look into it. I think Isaac probably did a lot of really good things that day to help out. I don't think that he saved 6,000 people's lives because, I don't know, the evidence just from Eric Larson's book, the evidence seems to suggest that he, that there was no time for all those people to evacuate. So maybe he, you know, got some people to move further inland, but even in his own home, which was not inland, he wouldn't leave his home, which we'll find out. So I don't know. I don't know about this. Okay. Okay. You guys can make up your own mind about that. We will have lots more to say about Isaac momentarily, but let's talk about a couple of ways the storm started to cause destruction before it even really um, unleashed on the island. One of them we've already talked about, which was the train from Beaumont. Trains coming in could no longer get to the island because the water like these train trestles are like over the sea and the water was just all the way up. The sea was rising and rising and rising to a point they'd never seen before. And before this, the hurricane truly hit the Island, the winds were picking up very, very high. And there was a, a cafe in the center of town called Ritter's cafe. And there were about 13 people in the cafe eating lunch. Um, And while they were just in there minding their business, a huge gust of wind out of nowhere, without warning, just tore the roof off Ritter's Cafe. And in Eric Larson's book, Isaac Storm, it says, the blast effect caused by the wind's sudden entry into the enclosed space of the second floor bowed the walls to the point where beams supporting the ceiling of Ritter's slipped from their moorings. The ceiling collapsed into the dining room, amid a cascade from the second floor of desk chairs and the brutally heavy printing presses that were located upstairs. Several um, men died instantly. Five. Five were killed instantly. Five other men were badly hurt. Only three that were in, three out of 13 that were in Ritter's cafe survived. Ritter himself survived, and he he sent a waiter out to find a doctor, And as the waiter went out into the flooded streets, uh, the water rose so quickly that he did not make it back and he drowned. So this was the first um, inkling, I guess you can say, the people of Galveston had that this storm was going to be different from the other ones that they had faced when, before things even really got really crazy, the roof of Ritter's Cafe was torn off and... Five people were killed. So, meanwhile, in the rest of the city, people are kind of trying to figure out what to do. Wives are begging their husbands by messenger to come home from work. Um, But most people, again, there's that optimism. We're thinking that it really was going to be fine. It's just another big storm. Sure, it's a scary one. Maybe we'll have some flooding. We'll have to move our valuables up to the second floor, but it's not going to be that big of a deal. Isaac himself, like I said, believed that his house would sustain the storm. So he went home with Joseph and got his wife and his three daughters together upstairs in a bedroom. His wife was in bed. Again, she was pregnant and not doing well. but when he got home, he found that his house was full of neighbors. All in all, about 50 people gathered with the Klein family because they too believed that his house would withstand the storm and they believed that if the weatherman was going to stay there, then he knew best and it was going to be safe for him. At home, Isaac, um, at 2.30 p.m., decided to send his brother Joseph out with an urgent telegram to the Weather Bureau. He wanted to, again, reiterate to them this was going to be quite an event. Um, but Joseph arrived home about three hours later. The water was waist deep, and he had had a lot of trouble sending the telegram and finally just managed to get word out by telephone before the lines went dead. This, at this point, Joseph and Isaac began arguing, Um, Joseph wanted everyone to leave Isaac's house and head for the center of town. But Isaac had faith in his house and he thought conditions outside had grown too dangerous for them to be successful in getting any further inland. And also his wife was ill and pregnant in bed. And so he just told Joseph, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to be safer here. And so they had a huge argument about it. All the while they're having this argument the storm is continuing to rage. Um, At the Weather Bureau, they did have a guy on duty, and he stayed at the Weather Bureau during the whole storm, but by 5.15 p.m., the wind had ripped all the instruments off the Weather Bureau's roof, so they couldn't measure the rain or the wind speed anymore. The highest wind speed that their instruments measured before they were destroyed was 100 miles per hour, but since then, um, this hurricane has been determined to be a Category 4, and they say the winds were probably 145 to 150 miles per hour. So Isaac and his family, many of his neighbors, were taking refuge in their home. And meanwhile, in homes all over Galveston, terrified families and neighbors also huddled in their flooded houses, climbing to second floors to try and escape the water, and crouching in terror as the wind literally tore their houses apart. Dozens huddled together in the same home as neighbors abandoned their homes for houses nearby that they thought were stronger and sturdier than their own, but in most cases it just didn't matter. 150 mile per hour winds blew at door frames, blasted windows open, picked apart walls, tore off roofs, and the Roaring, rushing waters pushed homes off their foundations. Um, Sooner or later, nearly everyone in the island found themselves suddenly in the sea. It was an inexplicable nightmare, and few could have imagined just how bad it would be. Meanwhile, back at the clines, they were not escaping this fate either. Joseph, always wanting to observe, Went out to his front door around 6.30 p.m. And there's a quote from his own memoirs that's in um, Eric Larson's book, Isaac Storm. And it says, I was standing at my front door, which was partly open, watching the water, which was flowing with great rapidity from east to west. Suddenly, the level of the water rose four feet in just four seconds. The sudden rise of four feet brought it above my waist before I could change my position all over Galveston. There are dozens of accounts of this water rising four feet in just four seconds. And that is when the storm surge came in. The storm surge that hit Galveston from this hurricane was 15 feet tall. If you remember at the beginning, I said Galveston at its highest point was only eight feet above sea level. So this was absolutely disastrous to the population of Galveston a wave that's basically twice as high as the entire island is now headed straight for it now water weighs a lot it's hard to really i mean it's weird to really think about but one cubic yard of water weighs about 1500 pounds so a wave of 50 feet long and 10 feet high weighs over 80,000 pounds when it's standing still it's moving toward your house at 30 miles per hour, that generates a force, a momentum of over 2 million pounds. So it is no wonder that all these houses were knocked off their foundations and all these people were pummeled by this crazy, crazy heavy water rushing at them as the sea overtook the whole island and as they became part of it. The Klein family, like I said, could not escape this. Their house wasn't enough to protect them. Somewhere in the dark, and it was pitch dark by now, and in, in addition to terrible howling winds, it was pitch dark. There was a railroad trestle that was like a quarter of a mile long that was at the leading edge of a huge pile of debris. Eventually that hit Isaac's house and completely knocked his house from the foundation. His brother, Joseph grabbed the hands of his two older daughters and dove out a window, but no one in the house followed. The rest of them went down with the house. However, Isaac himself did come back up and eventually was able to find his youngest daughter, Esther, and was able to grab her. And then he and Joseph, And all three girls spent the night basically floating on debris for hours till they finally came to rest. They went out to sea for a while. They came back inland. And finally, after hours and hours, they came to rest against a house that had not been destroyed and were able to seek sanctuary there. But Isaac did lose his wife, his pregnant wife, Cora May. She was eventually found a couple of months later, but she did not survive. All over the city, there were harrowing, harrowing tales of survival and terrible, tragic tales of death. Uh, Isaac's neighbor, Dr. Young, who lived across the street, he stood in his house alone. His family was in um, San Antonio, and he had managed to reach them by telegram and tell them not to come home early that morning. For he he himself, unlike Isaac Klein, did believe that the storm was going to be terrible. There's an account in Isaac's storm of him riding out the storm alone in his house, hanging on until the very last moment, and he when he leaped out onto his gallery as his house went down and was able to ride debris all night as well and end up safe, although he did suffer a very bad gash in his head. Um another woman named Mrs. William sorry, Mrs. William Henry Heideman, who was eight months pregnant saw her own house collapse and apparently kill her husband and her three-year-old son. She herself was able to climb onto a floating roof, in the, but then that roof collided with something else, which sent her into, onto a floating trunk, which was able to keep her afloat until she miraculously got to the upper windows of a convent in the city. And the nuns there hauled her inside, gave her warm clothes, and put her into a bed. But the stress of all this caused her to go into labor at eight months pregnant. Um, While she was in labor, a man outside stranded in a tree in the convent courtyard heard the cry of a small child and was able to pick him up from the current. And one of those crazy coincidences, he he saw that this child he had saved was his own three-year-old nephew, Mrs. Heidman's three-year-old son. He didn't even know that his sister-in-law was in the convent. That he was near. He didn't know his nephew was floating by and he just happened to grab his nephew. So Mrs. Heidman did survive. She had her baby in the convent that night and she was reunited with her three year old son, but she never saw her son, her husband again. Terrible, terrible stories like that all over the city. Um, another, this is an, an odd one. A gentleman from England was there in Galveston. It's like a really bad time to be on a vacation to Galveston. Um, his name was Edward Quayle of Liverpool, England, and he'd arrived at Galveston with his wife about three days earlier. And he was in a hotel. Um, actually, I'm sorry. He was in an apartment building staying there called the Lucas Terrace. And he happened to just be walking high up safe from the water below Walking um, past a window, just as the the room underwent a terrible depressurization from all the winds, and the window exploded outward into the storm and just sucked him right out the window, while his wife watched, and he was killed um, by just the sheer force of being pulled out in the window and thrown against debris and into the water. So that's just such like a crazy, random, terrible thing. He's visiting from England, and he's not even really in a particularly dangerous place as far as um not in a low-lying building not near the beach but he was killed by the terrible terrible forces of this crazy crazy storm another particularly sad but completely famous story that i would be remiss not to share from the galveston hurricane is that of saint mary's orphanage and if you've ever heard of the galveston hurricane you've probably heard this story there was a large Catholic orphanage right on the beach. I mean, literally built on the beach called St. Mary's and it held 93 children and 10 nuns. When the nuns realized the storm was getting bad, they moved all the children into the girls' dormitory, which was newer and felt that it would be more sturdy. There they had the children sing their, one of their favorite hymns, Queen of the Waves, to try and call them calm them down. And the sisters ended up tying most of the small children to them so they'd tie eight or nine kids to each sister with clothesline or rope to try and keep them all together. Only three children who were teenagers and were good swimmers were not tied to the nuns and at the end of the hurricane only those three who were not tied to the nuns survived. All the sisters and all the children died. Later a rescuer found one toddler's corp on the beach according to the book Isaac's Storm and he tried lifting the child. And then as he pulled the child up, the length of clothesline also came up from the sand, but tightened, and so he pulled on it and another child came out, and then he pulled on it again, and he found more children and more children, and finally a nun. They all remained died remained tangled together as they died. So it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. Ugh, I hate it. After the storm was over, after that terrible night, Galvestonians woke up to just unimaginable devastation. It is really hard to grasp how much damage was done. Literally every home in Galveston suffered damage with 3,636 homes destroyed. About 10,000 people were left homeless in the city out of a total population of about 37,000. And an estimated six to 8,000 people were killed. 6,000 is the most, is the low number, but a lot of people say 8,000. There's a lot of bodies that washed away that were unrecognizable. Many people did flee Galveston after, so there was a population shift as well, but six to 8,000 is the numbers that you're, typically going to hear about loss of life, and it is an incredible, incredible, incredible loss of life, one-sixth or more of the population of the city. So there was no family, no person that was untouched by this terrible, terrible storm. Early, um, the property damage estimates, after all the insurance companies had their say, was uh, $17 million in 1900, which is equivalent to about 622 million and change today. So it's crazy amount of damage. And in terms of loss of life, this is the absolute worst natural disaster that the United States of America has ever suffered. The, um, there was one area of destruction where literally nothing remained. That was a, a full 1,900 acres that was just completely white clean. It's, it's really unbelievable. Um, they had no way to get off the island. All the bridges connecting the island to the mainland were washed away. All the train tracks were destroyed. So the only way was to get a boat to sail. And that's how the first word of the storm got out. Um, the folks at the Weather Bureau and even in Houston were wondering how Galveston was faring because they hadn't got any word out since late afternoon on September 8th. So it had been, you know, on the morning of September 9th, it had been well over 12 hours since they'd heard one peep from Galveston. So there's a couple different um reports of how news got out of Galveston. There's one that says um that a ship finally was able to get out of out of the Galveston wharfs because many ships were completely wrecked. But one that survived was called the Farab, and it set sail and arrived in Texas City. Um with a group of messengers from Galveston. And when they reached the Telegraph office in Houston, they sent a message to Texas Governor Joseph D. Sayers and U.S. President William McKinley that said, I have been deputized by the Mayor and Citizens Committee of Galveston to inform you that the city of Galveston is in ruins. And they, at that time, estimated the loss of life to be 500 people, which was obviously grossly, uh, gross underestimate. There's another um, telegram which you can read in the book Isaac's Storm, which is to Willis Moore, the chief of the U.S. Weather Bureau from the manager of the Western Union in Houston. And it says, first news from Galveston just received by train, which could get no closer to the bay shore than six miles, where Prairie was strewn with debris and dead bodies. About 200 corpses counted from train. Large steamship stranded two miles inland. Nothing could be seen of Galveston. Loss of life and property. Undoubtedly most appalling. Weather clear and bright here with a gentle southeast wind. Nice to add the weather report for the weather bureau there. It was a very nice day the next day. Just a lovely day. Um, but it was not lovely for the folks on the island. As soon as word got to Houston and thereabouts, they started trying to send people to help by boat. Um, and there was one, military delegation that was on its way to Galveston. And in the book, Isaac storm, there's, um, a quote about what they experienced and specifically, um, an old soldier named general McKibben said, I am an old soldier, he said this later. I have seen many battlefields, but let me tell you that since I rode across the bay the other night and helped the man at the boat to steer to keep clear of the floating bodies of dead women and little children, I have not slept one single moment. There were tons and tons and tons of bodies everywhere. They tried to set up, you know, makeshift morgues as quickly as they could um they had people looking for their loved ones but also almost immediately they had realized that they had a huge huge problem with how to dispose of the bodies a quote from isaac storm says throughout galveston men and women stepped from their homes to find corpses at their doorsteps bodies lay everywhere parents ordered their children to stay inside 100 corpses hung from a grove of salt cedars at Hurd's Lane. Some had double puncture wounds left by snakes. Forty-three bodies were lodged in the cross braces of a railroad bridge. There were so many dead, said Philip Gordy Tip, eighteen at the time, you would sink into the silt, onto a body at every other step. Can you even imagine? It is it, it was just like a horrible, horrible night followed by an absolute horror movie of a reality when you woke up the next day. The famous Clara Barton, founder of the Red Cross, arrived um, at Galveston the next week to try and help. And she said that the city was so destroyed that there was an eerie silence over it that people walked around dazed. She said, quote, there was an unnatural calmness that would astonish those who do not understand it. Because people were in such terrible, terrible shock, having lost so many family members and friends, having lost businesses, having lost homes. And as we said before, Isaac Klein did not emerge unscathed. He lost his wife, Cora May, who was pregnant with their fourth child. And because of his own accounting, he went down as a hero of the storm. Eric Larson's account really... Uh, Cast that cast doubt on that. I don't think he's a particular villain. I think we did not know enough about, you know, storms and meteorology at the time. I think he got really bad information from the U.S. Weather Bureau that said, it's not coming your way, buddy. Don't worry. It's fine. So he had that in the back of his mind the whole time, even as he's recording the Timing and the size of these waves coming in. Also, he makes note in his account that there was never any like weird red or yellow skies that often come with a hurricane. But by the time he realized that it was indeed a hurricane and that he had been misled and gotten misinformation, it was really too late to help anyone much. I don't know why he wrote his account that tried to make himself sound like a hero, maybe because he was just trying to avoid blame. I think he, you know, just didn't have the right information at the time and maybe counted on his own abilities a little too much, but I don't see him as a particular, particular villain. Don't see him as a hero either. Like I said, the National Weather Service named its highest honor after him, so he had to have done something good. And later in life, he did write, like, a whole textbook on hurricanes, so I... Definitely think it's safe to say that he learned a lot from this experience and he tried to share it with others. And that brings me to what did we learn from this huge, huge hurricane that struck Galveston? Well, the citizens did decide to stay and rebuild. Obviously, Galveston is still a beautiful city. There were a few buildings that survived that are big landmarks and tourist attractions now. What they did was they decided to. Revisit that seawall plan. And they built a seawall so big it was um, 18 feet high, which is three feet higher than the storm surge that caused such terrible devastation. Another crazy, dramatic, just wild to me thing that they did, that it's even possible as wild to me, was they raised the city of Galveston. They dredged. Uh, 15 million cubic yards of sand from the Galveston shipping channel and pumped it under the city to raise the city. Some sections were raised by as much as 17 feet. Over 2,100 were buildings were raised. And um, according to a historian named David G. McComb, the grade of about 500 blocks of the city had been raised by 1911. So between raising the city in that big old seawall The seawall itself is on the National Register of Historic Places in the United States. Um, They were able to protect the city, and in fact, just 15 years later in 1915, a storm similar in strength and track to that 1900 hurricane came and hit Galveston. It had a storm surge of up to 12 feet, it put the new seawall to the test, and it proved a worthy seawall. Only 53 people on Galveston Island lost their lives, which is still terrible compared to 6,000, 6,000 to 8,000. However, it is, it must be seen as a huge, huge success. Um, there were other, you know, that, of course that's not the last storm that's come. It's way Hurricane Carla in 1961, Hurricane Alicia in 1983, Hurricane Ike in 2008. The preventions put in place, have continued to protect Galveston time and time again. Hallelujah. So while the 1900 hurricane remains the worst natural disaster in the United States history, I've got to say they learned a lot from it. They sprung into action, much like much like the people of the Dayton flood did and from our Dayton flood episode um, to make sure that it would never happen to their city again. And they did rebuild the city. And they rebuilt it strongly. However, the hurricane did put them behind the race with Houston. And Houston eventually won the race to be Galveston's, I'm sorry, to be Texas's premier port city. So, I mean, Galveston still probably has a better beach, though. You know what I'm saying? But Houston was a lot smaller than it. And then it got quickly, quickly ginormous and eclipsed Galveston in a big way. But people are still proud to be from Galveston. They rebuilt what they had there. They protected their city. And it's remained a thriving and beautiful city since that time. It's terrible, terrible, terrible that 6,000 people had to lose their lives to get there. And probably a lot more than that. But I'm so glad they learned their lessons. You have to wonder what would have happened if they had built a seawall back after the 1886 hurricane took down the... Uh, Coast city of Indianola, you have to wonder if Galveston had taken action then, what would have happened? I mean, who knows? Maybe the seawall would have been much smaller than it needed to be and inadequate. Um, but yeah, I mean, history would have been forever changed because you know things like that create ripples. So, I guess we can't we can't go back and want to change any of it. But um, just knowing what happened and that extreme loss of life, so many young children dying, so many families torn apart it really is just terribly tragic and uh dealing with all the bodies they tried to bury them at sea and many 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 bitches washed back up on store on shore so eventually they burned them all and they said the funeral pyres just went for weeks and weeks and weeks the stinky smoke all over the island just went on for weeks and weeks and because uh back then it was still pretty uh, difficult to be Black in the South. Often, men, Black men were held at gunpoint by white men and made to do the burning. So that's not great. And on that note, we will end our ha- terrible, horrible story of the Galveston Hurricane of 1900. Thank you all for being with me. I hope you learned something. I really, really suggest the book Isaac Storm by Eric Larson and Storm of the Century by Al Roker. The documentary was a really old one on YouTube. It's probably not supposed to be on YouTube, but it was. I will link it for you because I found it to be fascinating. Um, And I like, there's a lot of great accounts in the book, Isaac Storm, that are not about Isaac Klein. So he's a huge figure in the story, but there's so many more people that this hurricane affected. So I really encourage you to read them and look for more resources so you can learn more about these folks and, and hear their stories that deserve to be told. Thanks for hanging with me. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. I'm really wanting some more people to find us, and that helps me out so much. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy holidays. Bye. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen original theme music and sound engineering by robert rapson editing is by josh rapson you can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com original podcast artwork is by ken clark and disasterqueen.com website design is by hello chicky design check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs all show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.